the hard shoulder on News Talk with Nissan Subscribe and Drive. No deposit, no compromise, no fuss. Find out more at nissan.ie. Uh, you're listening to News Talk is the hard shoulder. I'm Mark Cagney sitting in for Kieran Cuddy. Now, it is a delight to be joined on the Thursday interview by a broadcaster, musician, journalist, Church of England parish priest, and by the way, when he's not busy doing all of that, uh, Chancellor of the University of Northampton. It is the Reverend Richard Coles. Uh, good afternoon, Richard. You're more than welcome. Nice to talk to you again. Thank and uh, we're, we're going to talk about, about your life, but in, in particular about the last couple of years uh, of your life. And the reason you're here today is because you've just uh, published a new book called The Madness of Grief, which focuses on uh, your love, uh, the life you led with your, your, your husband and the loss of your husband. The, the title, The Madness of Grief, tell me where that comes from. Well, it just seemed to be the most sort of accurate and, prithy, and pithy summary of what grief felt like to me when it um, smacked into me like a, a, a kind of car out of control. And um, I... You know, I'd seen it so many times before. I've walked alongside people going through it. I've seen it close up. Um, but when it actually came for me, it was completely unexpected. And I found that the familiar world was suddenly strange. I didn't really know who I was. I went through a repertoire of moves, um, patterns of speech, all that kind of stuff that you do. But I thought, I'm absolutely howling bananas in all this. And I started feeling that I was like in a war zone and that a bomb had gone off. And I remember a friend of mine who was actually once at a, at a, at a first on the scene when a restaurant was bombed. And he walked in there and it was full of people who had just been you know, having their lunch, who were dead and dying. And one couple, all their clothes had been blown off in the bars, but they were still sitting at their table, eating and talking as if you know, nothing had happened because they were in shock. And um, I sometimes think I'm a bit like them. Now, I, the, the reason I ask specifically is because I, I've been through the experience. I lost my first wife. Um, and the period afterwards, um, I, I describe it as the madness. That's what yeah. I thought was happening to me. I was going mad. Now, um, our, our circumstances, uh, you, you lost David uh, as a result of uh, liver disease and his uh, his alcohol problem, which we'll get to very shortly. I, I lost my first wife um because of a catastrophic brain hemorrhage but they both had a period in hospital where and again our, our, our stories kind of intersect here where as the next of kin both you and I had to make a decision probably the hardest decision that any human being will ever have to make about another human being i.e. when to switch the machines off on the person that you love your soulmate the other half of your of your your being mm. um and I, I just wondered wh- whether was was that moment where you didn't just have to say goodbye, but also give up on um, um, David. Was was that the kernel, the seed, the the beginning of the madness? I think the madness began when I was told by David that he might die, and the reality of that was suddenly in front of me, which I dreaded for a long time. When did he say this to you? Well, we, he, we was, he was admitted to A&E, um, fairly routine, that had happened before several times, and normally, and it was an internal bleed, and normally he would just have a blood transfusion. But 
this time the bleed was catastrophic and I was sort of ushered into a side room and there he was surrounded by medics and um, blood and they thrust a consent form into my hand and, and started saying things, medical things to me and I made a joke I think because I was thinking oh what's going on and then he made them all go away David and he, David was a former medic and he sent me the score and he said what was happening and that he might die and that he loved me and then they whisked him away and I was just standing there holding this consent form uh, with blood literally all, kind of all over my hands and my front and and that was the bomb blast I think that bit where you have to make that decision I mean a tiny I think about 20% of me that was rational and was engaging with the medical discourse understood what was happening and realized what I had to do um, I'd had a long discussion with the medics, understood what was happening, and our choices were limited. But the 80% of me that I couldn't really give voice to was going, miracle, now. <laughs> Medical miracle would be fine. Divine miracle, even better. Both would be really good. I work I for couldn't. the firm. I'm entitled. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Take it as my but bonus, please. Mates rates, mates rates, yeah. please. But um, I couldn't. I, I sort of couldn't really, and it, and it was sort of worse because I was having at the same time to manage a set of phone calls to David's family who live about three miles away, uh, three, um, three hours away from us. So I, I was trying to keep them in the picture, but also think about what I was saying to them and where they were, kind of driving down the M6 on Friday. So it was, I was having to make judgments all the time. And at one point I thought, David had worked in emergency medicine at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. And I, I just thought if this was House or something or a TV show, somebody would kind of, I'd call someone at Cedar sinai they'd go, oh, we're just trialling this new thing. And they'd all jump in a private jet and come over. You know, all those kind of hopeless wishes that you There's have. a very famous country song, which you may be aware of. I think it's by a man called Pat Barry called The Deal. So you were making oh, yes, deals. Yeah. Were you doing that in your head almost immediately? I would have done anything, I think. I went, I went to the chapel in the hospital and I walked in and of course there's a board there with these kind of hopeless prayers pinned on it from people in the same situation as me saying, you know, dear God, please make two and two equal three. And I don't pay that, don't pray those prayers. I don't think that's how it works, but I remember I wasn't saying, I wasn't speaking it, but the effect was, I'm not going to be much good for a while, so over to you. That's, yeah. that, that, that is, oh, I, I, some may listen and hear you say that and think of resignation, but it, it is, to me it sounds like you did, you know that, that game that we play when we're young where we, we allow ourselves to fall back and one of our, yeah. our friends is going to catch us. You, you, it sounded like that you, you did that with the universe or God and went, yeah. I'm going to fall backwards now and I'm going to trust that you're going to catch me. Is that what you were doing? Yes, I think so. And when he and didn't, when he let you down, how did you feel? Were you angry with well, him? Well, I don't think he did, you see. I don't think God gives you a get out of jail free card, any of that stuff. And also the promise of what lies beyond death does not swerve death. You have to go through it to get there. Um, so I had no, I think, expectation of that. Mm. Although there was a screaming part of me that was, I would have, I would have done anything. I would have accepted anything. I would have abjured the faith, and I don't know, 
uh, become a Jedi or something, if that's what it took. But I kind of knew rationally that that wasn't going to happen. And I think that's because I'd been there before with other people. And I kind of just knew from the way people moved, the way they spoke, the way the kind of mechanisms of the care kicked in, what was happening. There was a bit when I went, I went out to get some fresh air and I looked, there was a map of the hospital in the car park and I looked at this map of the hospital and there was ICU and there was high dependency and there was medical. And I sort of for a minute thought that by an act of will, I could imagine David's bed in ICU and sort of using telekinesis miraculously move it away from the exit on the mortuary side of ICU to high dependency and then to medical reverse what was happening yeah. that's what you want isn't it you want to reverse what's happening and of course you think of Mary and Martha and the raising of Lazarus or the bit before the raising of Lazarus when they say you could have stopped this why didn't you um, that just lands on you doesn't it and yeah. you just have to deal with it you well it, now you, you are theologically much better qualified to deal with this than a lot of the rest of us and of course hey, I'm in, Church of England it's a, it's a skimpy qualification. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, you know, professionally, you, you would have been part and parcel of the easing of your parishioners, uh, of your flock's grief. Yeah. So um, you, you kind of knew the rules, although, mind you, you never really know the rules until they are applied to you, do you? But um, no, that's, the, that's the difference, isn't it? It's uh, I know how to I know how to give the appearance of competence and unflappability when others in similar circumstances um, are not confident that they're able to do that. That's my job. Mm. And, um, and I'll do that. But I can't apply that to myself. It is, um, <clears throat> you know, there, there are sadly hundreds, thousands of people listening to us who will have experienced, uh, you know, the loss of a loved one, um, soulmate, partner, wife, husband, whatever. Um, you, you have said in advance, or uh, as part of the publication uh, of the book, that David would have hated this book. Um, would he have hated it because of um, you drawing back the uh, the veil of, of, of privacy and, and opening up your life with him? Or would he have hated it because you revealed that he was a, a chronic alcoholic? It was the alcoholic bits. Like, like lots of people who suffer from addiction, that was very much an experience that was bound up with a feeling of shame. And it's one of the way I think addictions work there, feels like demonic work, is that they make themselves unsayable, unseeable, unspeakable. Mm. And they dig in ever more firmly as they do that. And with David, it was just something that couldn't be talked about. Um, sometimes it was screamed about because I had to say something. Um, but that didn't really help either. So there was this awful conspiracy of silence that prevails around people with addictions. And it's absolutely deadly because it just militates against the addict getting an opportunity to sort of, I don't know, get a grip on what's happening to them. And it is, um, it, it, it is extraordinary how this disease of addiction, whether it's gambling or drugs or alcohol, it is in, incredibly democratic. You know, here you are, oh, yeah. two priests, two highly educated men um, who have not just a profession, but a vocation. And you would have thought that a, an addiction like that w wouldn't get in the way of what you do. And that if it did, that you would have the tools and the wherewithal to fix it. Yeah, not the case, actually. 
I know there's a great tradition as a whiskey priest in uh, Roman Catholic clerical <laughs> culture, but let me tell you- We have a few of them here, all right, yeah. <laughs> well, there's an Anglican equivalent to that too. And actually, funny enough, priests, particularly uh, high church priests at the Catholic end of our spectrum, which is where David and I were, um, and medics uh, and, and gay people, gay men, um, have much higher incidences of alcohol addiction than the general population. So actually, perhaps we were high risk all along. Is there a, do you think there's a correlation between that and the loneliness of their existence? I think lots of people self-medicate with alcohol. And one of the pains that would need medicating, palliating, anaesthetizing would be the pain of loneliness, I think. Actually, can I ask you, um, um, what kind of alcoholic was David? And I, I don't mean that um, um, facetiously, uh, because there are all kinds. There are benign, yeah. there are lovable, there are angry, there are, you know, impossible. Well, there were sort of three stages to his alcoholism. I think the first was that he just used to get legless sometimes in this way of immense sort of bravura, which he'd done when he was a young man in his sort of 20s. And you can sort of get away with that, I think, or you think you can. And then by the time we were together, his drinking became chaotic and dark and horrible. And there was a period of a few years when he was at his worst, when it was all but unbearable, um, <clears throat> public, humiliating, you know, that stuff. And then we had a breakthrough when I stopped being angry with him for it because he really didn't need to feel any worse about himself than he already did. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I love him. I'm just going to love him. That's what I'm going to do. So I sort of stopped being angry with him. And then his pattern of drinking changed. He stopped getting crazy drunk. And at first I thought that maybe this was him turning a corner, but then I counted the empties and I realised that he was drinking uh, inordinate amounts of alcohol, but in a different way. And that was through, he had permanently had a glass of what he would call Coca-Cola and he would sip that um, all day. And actually it was vodka and Coca-Cola. And so that was how he mm. kept his alcohol intake going. And in fairness to David, he did a couple of times, he did try really hard to stop. And it was pretty awful when he did. He had seizures and all the terrible things that happen when people try to stop drinking when they have a serious drinking habit. Ultimately, it's a mystery as to why some people fall down that hole. Some crawl out, hole themselves out. Some don't. But David couldn't. Mm. Um, how, this is deeply personal. Um, it, it, it is in some ways almost, you know, revealing what's going on in the confessional. Uh, how did your family and did David's family um, take the idea of, of, of you writing this book? Um, well, my family so used to be writing everything down anyway. If it's not in a book, it's on Facebook or something like that. <laughs> That's something that they would not have. And I do write things down. I mean, I think I, I one of the ways I try to remain alive or be alive is by capturing things in words and fixing them somewhere. When David died, of course, I wanted to capture him, and fix him somewhere in this world because I could feel him moving away. Mm. And that was, you know, that feeling when you first fear that they'll fade. The fading, and, yeah. Yeah, and you want to hang on to that. You can't remember how they smell. You There comes a day, there will be a day where yeah. you don't think of them at all that day and you'll be racked with guilt for weeks, months afterwards. And then there'll come a time when you can't remember their voice and you are bereft again. 
It's yeah. There's a lot of yeah. stages to this, which, by the way, uh, and because we've got a limited amount of time, which we're coming to the end of now, th- this is not uh, Richard Cole's telling all about his life with the love of his life who happened to be an alcoholic. This is about a spouse who's lost a partner who had an addiction problem and the problems that come with it and dealing with it afterwards. It is a meditation on grief for people like you who have been through this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think what, when it happened to me, the thing I most wanted from other people, apart from condolences that the form requires, which I did, was very grateful for actually, um, it was the hard won experience of other widows. Mm. People would come up and they would, and they, David's death was on the news and everything, and people would come up and they were very great about that. And it was that practical stuff that was really helpful, actually. Um, and, and as for, and, and also his family, I mean, the, his alcoholism was. We talked about it, of course. We talked about it when David was alive, but only once with David, which didn't go so well. And I asked them, I said, "Are you okay with me talking about this?" And they thought about it and they said, "Yeah." Mm. Um, the book is um, called "The Madness of Grief," and it is available in uh, all good bookstores, digital downloads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Richard, thank you so much. Um, I know it's still very raw for you because it's only twenty nineteen, isn't it? Yeah. So you you're 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 only <laughs> two years. Ah, that's one of the famous dashons in the background. Which one is that? Is. That's Pongo. Pongo. Yeah, Pongo. He's just he's a bit in love with the delivery driver at the moment. If you want uh, to know more about, ladies and gentlemen, if you uh, if you want to know more about the dashons and the part they have played in in, uh, <laughs> in Richard's so life, Daisy as well. Then. Um, then buy the book, which is called The Madness of Grief. Richard, it is, it is always a pleasure. And thank you so much. I know this is very personal and probably very difficult for you. Um, and, and all the more appreciated for that. Well, Simon, thank you. But it's always good to talk to someone who's been through it um, themselves. Well, thank you. And, um, and take care of yourself. Thanks, Mark.